This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Talking today about our electricity rates. Yeah, at it again. Uh, it, it seems, uh, of course, a lot of people are talking in, uh, well, including the Auditor General, uh, wanting to know uh, a little bit more about the creative accounting that the Ontario Liberals are doing in order uh, to try to justify what is going on with not really changing the electric, electricity system in any way. In other words, not really correcting the mistake. Uh, she doesn't believe her electricity system is a mistake. What she believes is the fact that she thought you could pay for it all was a mistake. So uh, she's listened to you. And, you know, what she said was you told her you wanted the rates reduced. So rather than changing the plan or altering the plan in any way or stopping the plan, she just refinanced it so it would take another 10 years to pay for it, moving it down to 30 years. That time, you know, talking about the uh, the technology becoming obsolete, they, they, they closed the, the plant in Tilsonburg that was making wind turbines because it's outdated already and they didn't want to retorque it. So... You know, at the end of the day, uh, I guess they had to say something and uh, have come up with uh, part of their or part of their 2017 long term energy plan was sort of the attempt to clean all of this up. And as a result, we find out that uh, hmm, the prices will go up another 43 percent once this little, uh, I guess, vacation, which is between now and the next election, once it, it runs out. Then the rates continue to go skyward in order in order to make up for it all. So it's basically, you know, you're paying for a car even after it's sort of on its last legs or you're pouring money into it to repair it. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Steve Alpin is with us, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use and is with us now. Steve, thanks for taking uh, the time to join us here today. Nice to be with you again, Scott. Thanks. So uh, your thoughts here, Steve. Um, you know, uh, Auditor General just a, a week or so ago came out and said these numbers don't jive, that uh, you're calling uh, debts assets, you're moving things around in this game, trying to, to, to make it look like it's better than what it is. I guess they have answered uh, with this, uh, uh, I guess, long-term energy plan. What is it really telling us? Well, I think that you described it pretty accurately off the top, which is just it's just basically a refinancing of of uh, of a debt burden that we're that we're accumulating as we speak. Instead of addressing the cause of this of the problem of high electricity rates, and let's not forget that that is that's the central problem that we're talking about here. Instead of addressing that cause, which is the shoehorning of of massive amounts of green energy into our system after 2010. Uh, they're addressing the symptom of it, which is the uh, excessive electricity costs. So what we're going to do is we're, we're getting rate relief temporarily until uh, sometime in the future, at which point we'll start, to, we'll start uh, repaying what, we've, what, we owe these, uh, what we owe these generators. So it's not a solution to the problem. It's just a temporary stopgap to cool the, uh, the, the heat uh, over high electricity rates. What can they do? What should they be doing? Well, in my opinion, I mean, there are, there's, there's a debate uh, among people like me uh, over how, to what extent they should uh, uh, revisit some of these contracts that they signed regarding wind power and solar power, which, in my view, are just exorbitant and, and totally unjustified. Uh, there are people who say that you can't simply tear up contracts, and I'm skeptical of that. But one thing that they absolutely should do is just cancel the wind and solar contracts that they have that are in the pipeline right now. We absolutely do not need that power, and it would be 
quite unconscionable in my why, opinion. Why are they not doing that, Steve? Like, again, there's no demand for power. Clearly, people are screaming about this. We're paying too much, more than we should be. And yet, rather than, you know, changing it's one thing, but to stop it from growing, that just seems like stopping the bleeding just seems to be a, a natural thing. Why are they it, not doing this? Yes, it's it sounds like a no-brainer, and that's and I, I'm at a loss to explain why, Scott. I wonder if it might boil down to something that we're seeing uh, a, a syndrome that we're seeing south of the border, where we've got a president who doesn't like to back off of positions that he's taken, no matter how crazy they were when he uttered them. Uh, I think we're, we've got a government here that doesn't want to back off a position, a sort of green energy position, for lack of a better, uh, for lack of better terminology, doesn't want to back off that, in spite of the fact that it's proven to be an absolute disaster for them. Uh, I, I wonder how much of it is, comes down to that. Uh, but I really, it's it's a no-brainer that they should be canceling the ones that are in the pipeline because we, as you said, we don't need the power right now, and and we're knocking uh, expensive established generation that's also zero carbon, for example, uh, uh, OPG Hydro and Bruce Nuclear, out of the system so that we can pay for wind that costs twice as much. We did that just starting at 10 p.m. last night. It, it's crazy. So uh, uh, I. I can offer up that as an explanation, but uh, it's it's really it's quite a remarkable situation where we've got a government that's not going to take these um, projects out of the pipeline. We've certainly had no shortage of experts for many many years. Like this was no, we knew this was coming. I mean, this yes. was projected a long long time ago, and we've had many uh, experts on this show over the last uh, ten years or so that have predicted and, and said the same thing more certainly more that way than the other. Yeah. Um, I, I just find it fascinating that rather than say, oh, look, we've done it, we've accomplished what we set off to do, now we're going to, reiter- we're, we're going to restructure our plan or refocus our plan or find a new direction, that they just seem to be doubling down on the same thing that has got people upset in the first place. Yes, it's a, well, as I said, it, it's a remarkable situation. Uh, and I believe that, I think that there's a lot of uh, ideology, there's another sort of uh, explanation for it. There's a lot of... Yeah, you know, I hate to come right out and say this, Steve, but is this just extreme activist thinking that just refused to let go of the tree? Yeah, it just, it seems le- that way, because, uh, you know, as 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 numerous experts, you know, as you rightly point out, have, have pointed out over the years, that we're not getting the benefits, the putative benefits from green energy that the that its proponents claim we're going to get. And, and this was something that was predictable even before we started shoehorning wind into our system. So now that we have shoehorned it in, and surprise, surprise, the people who were skeptical of it from the beginning turned out to be completely justified. Uh, now that that's happened, we're, we're sticking with it. Yes, there's green ideology that is behind this and green activism that is behind this and unfortunately uh there uh, there's uh a willingness on the part of the of, of the current government at queen's park to take that seriously i think that that is it has cost them politically uh it it could very well be that they believe, feel that politically it is also benefited from them and mm. you could argue that way as well, well you know what i honestly you know i think there is something to say about that steve especially in the last 10 years i mean the liberals have been using green to buy votes forever and yep. you know and and now, and, and like let, let's be serious all canadians want to be green all political parties are green they're like so much so that the green party really doesn't have much of a platform That's anymore right. so at the end of the day the argument you know the argument seems to be that anytime you question a plan, you're anti-green or you're a fossil fuel-burning pig. And I don't think, although it washed in the last 10 years, I don't think that's washing anymore. 
I think I think I think Ontarians are realizing they've been in ta- they've been taken advantage of, and their green vote has been bought. It, it, that, that could very well be the case. That, that, that could be the case. What I wish that the government would do, the government has, the government can point to a success story in this, in this system. You mentioned off the top that I, that I work for a site called Emission Track, and, and it's unequivocal that Ontario's GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions yep. from electric power generation, are incredibly low. Mm. They're insanely low. Like if, if you show them on a graph compared with Alberta, for example, you can't see uh, Ontario's emissions they're, they're they're that low whereas on uh, alberta's just dwarf them so that's a success story it's the problem is according to the green activists that the government hooked up with in the first place to 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 push this whole green thing it this, those emission reductions were not done in the politically correct way mm-hmm. they were done using nuclear power and those activists across the board are anti-nuclear so they're not yeah. really against carbon emissions they're just against nuclear so they have supported wind and solar, which demonstrably have not lowered our greenhouse gases. That's not what lowered our greenhouse gases. It was nuclear that did this. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I wish the government would rethink this. For some reason, the the government trots out the green activist line, and you have Al Gore coming to town and saying exactly the same thing. This is demonstrably false. If, If the government would simply point to its record and say, we have achieved the largest emission reduction in any electricity sector in North America since climate change became a public issue, uh, if, if they could say that with absolute truth and just say what, was the, what the cause was. It was nuclear power that enabled us to do that. We used nuclear to replace coal, period. That's what did it. So what is the future of nuclear? Because obviously, uh, after what happened in Japan and, and such, uh, this seems like you said it's a big bad word again. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a big bad word among those who oppose it. Those who oppose it have at their disposal and for evidence, a bunch of newspaper headlines to point to. And if you look at the newspaper headlines and then read the, the stories that are under the headlines, you don't find dead bodies, which is what you need for a technology to be dangerous. The only thing that's lacking in this nuclear story is the body count. There isn't a body count. So with Fukushima, yes, it was a, a huge amount of headlines around the world, and people, you know, it, it drove a lot of stories. It, it spilled a lot of newspaper ink but it did not result in human casualties, which is what a technology needs to have if you're going to call that technology dangerous. So it's, uh, it's, I'm, you know, I'm always hoping that there's going to be a, a, a sober uh, reappraisal of it as a technology. It's absolutely the only technology that we can use in order to uh, move forward in the age of climate change and especially to address uh, the next big sector of, of greenhouse gases in Ontario and everywhere else, which is home heating. Uh, it's only nuclear electricity can achieve that. So uh, uh, if, if we reappraise, if we take a sober-minded look at, at the actual uh, um, safety record of this technology, I think that we'll maybe reappraise it. But in, uh, I will take this opportunity to salute the government of Ontario so, because at least it has not... Uh, uh, been anti-nuclear to the point where it has removed reactors from our system, in, except for um, temporary blips like started like starting at 10 o'clock last night when we lost you know 750 megawatts of of Bruce nuclear power to maneuver around wind, which costs twice as much. In spite of that, the Ontario government has been fairly supportive. They know what side of the bread. Can you go back are. over and talk about what happened at Bruce again? Well, at around 10 o'clock last night, the you know the the demand cycle dropped as it always does on a weeknight in in fall, and uh, demand dropped. 
uh, but wind kicked up. So something else has to come off the grid in that case. We've set up our grid so that if uh, wind comes on, there's some curtailment of wind, but to, for the most part, you can't curtail wind. Hmm. Uh, we uh, took off a nuclear plant, or the equivalent of a nuclear plant, around 700 to 750 megawatts of nuclear power, for which we are paying between 6 and 7 cents per kilowatt hour, in favor of wind, which costs Right. Twelve and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Right. On, on, under what economic rationale was that made? I, your guess is as good as mine. But that's, you know, I think that any reasonable person would say that that's a dumb thing to do. But we do this all the time, and we just and we do it also with OPG hydropower, which costs even less than nuclear. So we take out four to five cent hydro in favor of twelve to thirteen cent wind. Explain that one to me. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of refurbs done with nuclear. Are, are they hoping before anything else has to be done that solar and power will be technolo- uh, technologically advanced enough to replace it? I mean, where are we in 30 years? Yeah, well, no, they're not technologically advanced to replace it. They never will be. That's the kicker. Uh, wind has been has been uh, uh, sold and peddled as a new power source. It's not new. We've been using it for thousands of years, for thousands of years. Up until the mid-1800s, <laughs> we used it to transport all our, all our cargo over the world's oceans. Yeah. It's, it's, it was unreliable then. It's unreliable when you use it for electricity. Uh, solar, well, the, the sun goes down every night, and you can't use it at night, which, which rules it out as a 24-7 power source. And, Scott, think of all the things that we do in our modern society today that rely on 24-7 power. Broadcasting, your industry, cannot survive without 24-7 power. The internet, and think of all the things we use the internet for, where, you know, the, the, the cryptocurrency like Bitcoin runs on 24-7 power. You cannot, it's not viable unless you have it. Well, wind and solar cannot provide 24-7 power. They can't today, they never will in the future. So uh, there's, there's no technological adv- advance that is going to make them comparable with a source like nuclear i guess that i guess the hope is is for them is uh better technology and battery storage yes but uh, you know again i mean uh, you know my car battery is uh, cost me 300 bucks i get one and a half kilowatts out of it for maybe 20 seconds before the battery's burnt out and i have to recharge it or i wreck it yeah hmm. uh that's 300 dollars for one and a half kilowatt hours for what 20 seconds uh, battery technology is incredibly expensive. Solar with batteries is incredibly expensive. And that assumes that the problem with solar is storage, and it's not. It's, the problem is not storage with solar. The problem is production. It doesn't produce enough. Is solar a better, is solar more viable than, again, um, cost effective than uh, wind? Well, certainly not in Ontario. Solar has been, in terms of, you know, you talked about the Auditor General. across. One of the things that people, that all the people who are attacking her right now do not disagree with her on is her assessment of the costs of the, each of these energy types. And solar is by far the, 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 the highest uh, per, per kilowatt hour that it generates. She, she had it somewhere uh, between 40 and 50 cents, which is just outrageous. There's a reason that people who have solar panels on their house are part of the FIT program. They wouldn't put the solar panels on their house unless there were a FIT program that were paying them exorbitant prices so yeah. that they can earn a second stream of income off this. It's simply not an economical source. Put it on your house, go off the grid, and then you will be wishing to get back onto the grid. So it, it's, uh, I don't see advances in it as a technology that make it viable uh, using a central station spinning turbine grid model 
that that we've had since you know since before I was born. Uh, I, I remember when we had uh, the premier on the show and discussing the electricity system, and what she seemed to reinforce was that um, you know we are ahead of everybody on this. We were first. The rest of the country is now trying to play catch up. I, for the life of me, don't see any advantage of being first in this scenario when this technology is changing so quickly. And quite the opposite, I think the other provinces are looking at Ontario and going, this is how we don't do it, because these guys are about to get booted out. So, uh, absolutely. So, yes. so what was the advantage to being first here? Uh, the advantage to being first was bragging rights among the international elite of green activists. Yeah. And basically, that's it. Uh, you're right. There's there's no advantage to being what we paid to be first. So we're paying fifty cents a kilowatt hour for solar. Our power is so ex- our electricity is so expensive that people who should be using it to heat uh, because it's because it's clean. It's among the cleanest electricity in North America. People who should be using it to heat are absolutely not using it to heat. They're using gas. Yeah. Those who can choose gas are using gas to heat with. Uh, to, to heat with rather than Ontario electricity yeah. because Ontario electricity is too expensive. I, I, I see this all the time rurally in cottage country where, you know, they've been using clean electricity to heat their homes since the 1970s, and now it's almost ironic uh, that the Ontario government wants to try to gasify the north, which is very expensive, because they can't afford clean electricity anymore. They can't afford electricity, exactly. And, well, this that, that turns the sort of central station, uh, you know, we, that turns the model on which we electrified rural on, and northern Ontario on its head. Back then, it was urban ratepayers paying a little bit more than cost to it, in order to electrify rural and northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Now, rural and northern Ontario is bloody well paying for its own power, which makes it non-viable as a power source. It's unconscionable, in my opinion. I think that I think that we that's something that we need to. Revisit and other jurisdictions that are looking to go green should use Ontario as a cautionary tale. It's too bad that that we didn't just stick with nuclear and hydro to decarbonize our power system. We could have easily done it, and we could have done it at far far less cost than we have than we were suffering now using. Uh, uneconomical and inefficient power sources like wind and solar. Uh, one more question. Uh, answer this if you can for me, Steve. How come, obviously, Trudeau and, and Wynne are, uh, you know, during the last election were inseparable, but I, I don't understand why they differ on this, why Trudeau uh, is looking into carbon tax and why uh, Wynne is into cap-and-trade. Why would, or uh, into cap-and-trade, why would they not be on the same page? Why would everybody not be on the same page on how to do this? Yeah, well, I, I, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's for, for a politician implementing a system like this, cap-and-trade is the much easier to weasel out of when it comes to, uh, it, it looks like you're doing something, and you can fix the market so that you, so you don't have a very uh, a low, or so that, you can, so that you have a low floor price, price for carbon, meaning that it doesn't really cost that much to, to, uh, to pay for a ton of carbon. Uh, it, it would, in, with a cap and trade program, or if you just run the economics of Ontario, uh, we need to we need a, a carbon price of something like 900 tons before it becomes economical. Before people will start choosing electricity over natural gas to heat their home, 900 tons. It's very easy under cap and trade program to make sure that the price of carbon never reaches 900 tons. And while Telling people, hey, I'm doing something because I've attached a price to carbon. As for the carbon tax, well, it's a it's a more of a flat rate. Yeah, it's more predictable as as far as uh, business. And is would concerned. you and would you say transparent? 
Uh, well, I guess, I guess it is transparent because a tax is, is like it's, there's going to be a you know, rate on carbon. It's not like you know the rate changes every day. It's like a fluctuating right. fluctuating exchange. There's a flat price. If you had to have a price on carbon, a, a, a tax is much easier to implement, much easier to understand, and much more transparent. And uh, much harder to uh, skim off the top. That's just my opinion, though. Y- yes, h- harder to skim off the top, although they could find all yes. sorts of creative ways to do this. The, 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 the reason why I... It, the, the value of a carbon tax really depends on the government that's going to spend the revenues that it raises. Uh, under... under uh, I, I hate to sound partisan... Under the federal liberals and provincial liberals, I don't have any confidence that they're not just going to plow that back into uneconomical, politically correct stuff like wind and solar. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump has released some of the remaining JFK files. However, citing security concerns, uh, some documents were held back. To talk more about all of this, Tom Whalen is with us, Associate Professor, Social Sciences, Boston University, and is with us now. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we appreciate this. My pleasure. We should also say author of Kennedy versus Lodge, the 1952 Massachusetts Senate race, and uh, JFK and his enemies. Uh, Tom, how big an event is this? Is uh, How will we look at this uh, over time, whether it's th- today, this week, next week, or a year from now? How significant is this event? Well, it certainly has grabbed uh, international attention, and I think how significant it will be moving forward depends on what else is released. Uh, you know, what can be revealed about what happened on November 22nd, 1963, and Although the documents yesterday kind of gave some really titillating kind of um, clues or, you know, revelations, you know, but there's no concrete proof yet. But um, I think the most startling thing that came out yesterday was that the Dallas FBI office uh, received a tip um, just before Lee Harvey Oswald himself was assassinated by a mob-connected local uh, nightclub owner in Dallas, uh, Jack Ruby. And, you know, they said, you know, Oswald is going to be killed. And they kind of fluffed it off. And, you know, they didn't think much of it. They thought, oh, the Dallas police will take care of this security. And uh, that would suggest that there might have been a much larger conspiracy. So, uh, obviously, uh, this may fuel conspiracy theories, uh, protection that should have been there that wasn't, and perhaps uh, um, things that weren't done that, that should have been done. Will it change the outcome, the killer, who the killer was, this sort of thing? Or is it just the, the process leading up to it? Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, it, most historians like myself agree Lee Harvey Oswald was the killer. The question has always been, has there been, was it part of a larger scheme? Right. Uh, was there ties to foreign intelligence agencies? And with the whole, uh, you know, Oswald being killed now, was there somehow links, maybe an organized crime link. Jack Ruby certainly had links uh, to uh, to the mob. So does this have something to do with organized crime? And how was Lee Harvey Oswald uh, involved in that? So it raises more questions than provides answers, which the Kennedy assassination always has seemed to have done over, you know, the last few years. So as we drill down into this, will we just raise more questions that we may find answers to, or is this just as much a mystery as before these files were released? Well, history takes its sweet time to reveal itself, (laughs) I think is probably the best way to say it. And I think until the Cuban archives are opened or 
the uh, KGB archives in Russia, we probably won't know. No. And will those ever be? I mean, we'll never know that know that information, will we? Probably long after we've uh, passed uh, this world, I, I assume. Uh, obviously, some of the material has been uh, has, has they have hung on to reasoning for that, uh, and in the president's involvement in that. Well, I mean, I think the FBI and CIA are concerned that there is material there that is going to embarrass it. Uh, my gut feeling is a lot of it probably has to do with just, um, you know, incompetence on the FBI and CIA's part. But also, um, in the documents that have been released, it kind of shows how, you know, the CIA was actively involved in assassinating foreign leaders. I think a lot of uh, nations in the world are not going to appreciate some of the, you know, revelations that would come forth from that. So you feel this is more about them protecting themselves as opposed to protecting informants or other people who may be involved in this? Well, I mean, informants now are probably all dead or in nursing homes, so yeah. I don't think it would make a big deal. But yes, they're going to, they are crying national security and, you know, uh, trying to preserve uh, national intelligence collection um, activities. And, but I think that's a real stretch. Uh, obviously, right now with the current administration, lots of chatter about Russia, lots of chatter about spying, which obviously everybody does. Does this change the current political narrative in any way? Will this will this shed light on that in any way? Well, I mean, I, I think it kind of contributes to the overall sense of cynicism politically. And, you know, Donald Trump certainly has shown um, cynicism. But I think if uh, if there is some sort of tie... To Russia that is revealed in the remaining papers, that, that complicates an already complicated situation between the United States and Russia. Can Trump use this to his advantage in some way? Well, I think he already has, frankly. I mean, he had a pretty rough previous two weeks and politically, and, you know, his program is stalled in the United States Congress, and this provided him um, kind of a a respite. You know, he had some political cover. Everyone's really going to pay attention to these revelations from the, the Kennedy documents and not pay attention how badly um, his uh, policymaking is going. How long will it take to decode all of this? As you mentioned, there is lots of uh, material there. Uh, will we still be hearing this about this months from now? Like, oh, look what we just found here. Probably. And a lot of it's unanswerable. I mean, a lot of the, the documents, and I was looking at, you know, quite a few of them last night, you know, a lot of it's kind of gossip, unsubstantiated, unconfirmed rumors. Uh, but, you know, you, you get like one, that story, the uh, paper in England, and, you know, they get a call 25 minutes before the assassination in Dallas. Exactly. Yeah. Pay attention. Something's coming out to the United States. Something's going to happen big. You know, that's that's strange. But, I mean, does it really say anything definitively? No, unfortunately, but it does raise an eyebrow or two. Uh, does, how does this change the way we handle material like this? How does this change the way we will document uh, these events in the future, uh, or even the way intelligence handles the information it receives? Well, I mean, I think they already are pretty reluctant to put anything down on paper that I think a lot of the government's secrets, you know, will just kind of go away. It'll be kind of word of mouth. There, I think a lot of um, intelligence agencies are very, very careful in terms of what they put down and what they do not. And frankly, during the Cold War, presidents were the same way, the whole notion of plausible deniability. You know, presidents do not order assassinations of foreign leaders or 
other uh, potential uh, enemies of the United States, but there would be an understanding, an unsaid understanding, that the president would want a certain leader to go away, and an agency like the CIA would uh, carry it out or try to. Are Americans interested in this? How how fascinated are they by this story and the fact that these were released oh, this week? <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. My phone's been ringing off the hook. I've done you know quite a few interviews. It's just uh, it's amazing that so much time has passed and there's so much interest. But again, it's John F. Kennedy was a special president. You know, he was probably the last president that most Americans trusted uh, because, you know, from 63 onward, you know, you had your Vietnam War and, you know, yeah. Watergate, Iran-Contra. It was pretty commonplace for presidents to be caught in bold-faced lies. And, it, you know, whether right or wrong, a lot of people felt that John Kennedy was, uh, was straight with them. And, you know, I think history judges that he certainly shaded the truth quite a bit. But, you know, the perception is out there that, you know, the country changed, and, you know, in the Kennedy era, that's when the United States was at its zenith in terms of overall power in the world. Hmm. And uh, I think there's a bit of nostalgia sprinkled in there. Yeah, make America great again. Gee, it all fits, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh, does does the narrative of the day politically with the Trump administration and, and such attract more attention to this? Does it change the discussion in any way? The timing of all this? No, except that, you know, the only thing is that uh, President Trump is uh, conspiracy-minded, shall we say, to begin with. And he's always looking for a conspiracy where there isn't any necessarily. So, you know, I think his that kind of paranoia kind of feeds into the general culture, and I think it makes for an overall unhealthy uh, political situation. Does this add more confusion for him to the narrative? Obviously, it seems that's the way he likes to uh, conduct himself, create confusion, try to get your opponent offside. Does this play right into his uh, stream of politics? Well, you know, it keeps people's attention away from other important matters that I'll say he's been lagging on. Right now, it's the uh, federal budget. Uh, there's a big fight in the United States Congress, you know, should there be a huge tax cut? And, you know, the opposition is lined up, and even Trump's own party is divided over it. He's past week had a couple of uh, Republican senators speak out against him and denounce uh, the Republican piece. There's a civil war going on in the Republican Party right now, mm. and Donald Trump, I think, welcomes any kind of distraction like the Kennedy papers. Ever since Donald Trump came onto the scene, uh, you know, it, it seems, Tom, that he's tried uh, very, very hard to promote instability, confusion, uh, false news, ac accusing people of fake news, fake this, fake that, which obviously, uh, uh, you know, allows him to say what he wants and, and, and people, I guess, um, uh, look at it uh, differently since they're they don't know where the truth is. I suppose uh, it seems now that traditional news services, what have you, are tightening up their stories. Uh, they seem to be fighting back. CNN has got an ad out saying, you know, an apples and apples and apples sort of thing. H have people, and we're, we're even seeing this inside the Republican Party. Party are are we starting to realize that? Donald Trump has painted this illusion of fake news to simply draw uh, attention away from the fact that he is the fake news. Has America well, got? Has, uh, has, you, has, you could uh, argue that. But ha, ha, has has that America out. got that point, or, or is there a portion that are feeling that way? Or is the base the you base know, the base? I, well, I think there's there's there is a solid core base of Trump supporters, and uh, they don't care what 
you said about Trump or what lies he's caught in, they are the true believers. And, you know, that's really divided um, the American public. And also, frankly, along class lines, you know, there's a huge income disparity in the United States. Working class uh, people feel like they've been left behind. And many feel that Donald Trump, uh, despite all his many faults, speaks for them, or at least has made an effort to stand up for them. So it's a very divided electorate. Um, I really haven't seen the country this divided in quite some time. What does the base have to see, Tom, uh, in order to gain results? What does the base have to see in order to give a thumbs up and say, yeah, we're right on track here? Have they seen those well, results? Well, the, uh, the tax cuts would, would be a major plus in, that, in, the, in their favor. If they could get that tax uh, reform program through, um, that would please all factions in the party, though that remains to be seen. Uh, so at what point, is it at that point where they say, look, America is great again? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. That, that's going to be difficult given the, the global situation right now, given the many challenges the United States faces. And, you know, frankly, you know, Donald Trump was, you know, talking about how, you know, foreign trade is what's taking away American jobs and that kind of nativist appeal resonated among many blue-collar workers, but the simple fact of the matter is what's taking blue-collar jobs is technology. Yeah. People are being replaced by machines, and that is not going to be going away anytime soon in the 21st century. It's going to only accelerate. Is that message uh, is that message resonating? Uh, it doesn't seem to be resonating louder than Donald Trump. Well, um, I think that's an apt way to put it. Uh, you know, r- right now we're, we're still in the middle of this fog, if you will. And I think um, it's going to take another year or so before it's, you know, we might see some daylight. How is the, or how are the discussions regarding NAFTA playing out down there? Is it the same sort of thing? It depends on which party line or who you're asking or whose core base you're asking. Is that much of a discussion down there? Yes. I mean, in terms of depending on who, among just regular Americans, it doesn't seem like a big deal because there's all these other issues going on, but within the political parties, that that is a big debate, uh, particularly in the Republican Party. You know, establishing Republicans are all for NAFTA and, you know, free trade. That's been a core value of the Republican Party for a long time. And uh, that seems to be going away now. Donald Trump, he's declared war on the entire principle. Uh, one last question. This one in regard to uh, the opioid crisis. He has. We have the same problem up here that you guys are having down there. Um, mm-hmm. He has declared this uh, an epidemic. What does that mean? How does the position change? What does it mean for Americans on this front? Well, hopefully it will mean resources will be uh, sent uh, to uh, the proper authorities' way to deal with um law enforcement and also treatment of people who are kind of caught up in this this horrible, horrible disease. But, you know, given the budget crisis and uh, problems, you know, the Republicans don't seem to have their act together. They control both houses of the Congress here, but um, they can't come to agreement. So where the money is going to come from, um, well, that's an open issue. Uh, another question. Uh, you were talking about JFK, and obviously uh, you've done lots of research on him. You talked about the nostalgia, uh, and, and, and you know, I, I'm guessing we may get to see the same thing with Barack Obama over the years. He may be held up as the same sort of figure, probably will, will I'm guessing, uh, considering uh, of his uh, Nobel Peace Prize and such. That being said, how do you think we will view Trump? 
and I guess maybe this depends on whether he gets a second term or not, but will we look back beyond all of this and say, wow, there was something there that he was right? Will, will, we, will we look back at that, or will we just well, shake I'm our heads at this whole time? Looking back, and I just at this point, I just can't see it. Uh, I, this is a pretty dark interlude for the United States. Are we missing something, though? Well, we'll find out. Uh, we're kind of right in the middle of it. It's hard to see at this point. Do you think other, uh, my other big question in this is why are the Democrats not coming up with the next great leader, the next great plan, the next great uh, uh, process in order to beat the, the, the party they are uh, trying to, as opposed to just uh, flinging mud at Donald Trump or rolling out Hillary Clinton or, or wherever? Do they understand the reason that Trump got voted in? Do they understand that people are, um, are, are disillusioned with uh, the political system and they have to provide some sort of alternative? When does that happen? Well, the simple answer to that is that the Democratic Party itself is divided, and there is an internal civil war going there as well. So it's unsure of how it's going to move forward. And, um, you know, the problem was everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to be uh, running things, and uh, everything was kind of organized around that principle. But it's uh, quite a shock to the system, I suppose. And the Democratic Party doesn't have exactly a young, deep bench of potential political leaders. So it's going to need to develop one if it's going to remain a, you know, a um, formidable political force in the years ahead. Do you think we will end up with more Trump-like leaders moving forward? Is this the answer to party success, or will we learn from this and the pendulum swing back and end up with something the opposite? Fortunately, I think we're Trump-like leaders. Success in the ballot box um, always encourages imitators, so we'll probably see more Donald Trump point twos or whatever. (laughs) Tom Whalen has been with, Tom Whalen has been with us, associate professor of social sciences at Boston University, and of course author of Kennedy versus Lodge, the nineteen fifty two Massachusetts Senate race, and JFK and his enemies. Tom, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML. It's uh, Halloween, and actually, I'm a little late. Uh, usually, I get the uh, Castle Thompson all decorated up there with the orange and uh, purple lights. And uh, actually, I, I honestly think our uh, Halloween display is might even be bigger than the Christmas display. And normally, I'm like on the ball and out there like a week or two ahead of time. And, uh, you know, my son and I are heading out tonight to uh, get it done. And look at this. It's less than a week to uh, Halloween. So normally, for Canadians, anyway... That is sort of the cutoff point. You know, you get through Halloween, and then hopefully you'll start to see the Christmas stuff and so on and so forth. But, of course, what we've been seeing is even before Halloween, the Christmas trees are up. Well, in the United States, they've got Thanksgiving between Halloween and uh, Christmas. So there's another one in there, another holiday squeezed into all of that. And Americans are getting a little cranky that uh, not only before Halloween, but before their Thanksgiving They're starting to see Christmas decorations uh, and holiday decorations, whatever you want to call it, uh, arrive in uh, department stores. So Target this year, or Target, as the fashionable like to call it, uh, has chosen to take it easy with Christmas until American citizens have had a chance to celebrate Thanksgiving. Should others do the same? Now, is this a reaction to people complaining or is this a strategy? Or will just the other uh, retailers go, great, 
uh, targets out of the uh, war for the first uh, couple of weeks. Let's go in there and, and go over the jugular. They don't want the sales. We'll get them now. We don't care. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Uh, you can see her stuff in Huffington Post Canada, uh, as well, Canada.com, PR Daily. With us now, Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Scott. I was listening to you talk about Halloween decorations, you know, and I'm in the car. Mm-hmm. And one of the cars in front of me has those, like, Halloween hands sticking out from the back of their trunk. <laughs> and I will tell you, I will tell you, I fell for it. I, you know. Oh, no, there's, <laughs> there's, somebody, there's somebody locked in the trunk of the car. Yeah, and his hand is flopping around, and he's wearing, like, a plaid shirt, and he's yeah. got a wedding ring, supposedly, on it. I, I don't know. I've, I found well, it well if he's got a wedding ring on, no wonder he's in the trunk. <laughs> Man, Forget that- the doghouse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and most people would probably just go up and pull the ring off as opposed to, you know, saving the poor man. Yeah. All, all right. What, what, what is this? Is this, uh, and well, two questions. Is it Canada and the United States? And is this a reaction or is this a strategy, a sales strategy? I, you know what? I, I also think it's a PR strategy. So why don't we kind of take them one by one? You know, Target. I don't think anybody in Canada really cares about Target anymore. And, you know, they left a lot of people holding the bag. So um, I think that part of it is a PR strategy in that they are trying to portray that they care about their shoppers, their consumers. So that's the first thing. I mean, you know, listen, you can walk into any of those big box stores, and as soon as one season is over, you know, they're getting rid of the school supplies and they're putting out pumpkins. And it just seems to make time go so fast. So I think that it's, it's an interesting strategy, and I'm not sure if there's any financial gain attached to it, um, unless what they're doing is that they're, they're going to really sort of segment their sales cycles and talk about Halloween and Halloween sales and then talk about Thanksgiving and then Thanksgiving Black Friday sales. And then maybe just to keep the sales cycle clean rather than starting to clutter it with full-price Christmas merchandise. So it might be one of these things where they don't want to put the Christmas merchandise out. They'd rather sell it for full price than people presume that it's going to be on sale during sort of their Black Friday sale. So it's kind of an odd type of thing. But I will tell you what's been great about it. We're all talking about it, so mission accomplished. So that being said, why not take it one step farther, Alyssa? Why not make the first day of Christmas at Wal at um, I almost said Walmart at Target? (laughs) Why why not make it a big event? Like you know what we have hung off. We're not trying to do this. We're not trying to do that. But come this day, make sure your arse is in a Target store because it's going to be amazing. Well. I bet they'll do that, Scott. I think that you probably got some inside information on their marketing plans, it sounds like. So. No, no, Alyssa. I'm, no, Alyssa, I'm just brilliant. I'm just brilliant. That's what it is. Well, well you're telling me this now? Of course. You all know this. <laughs> I'm just looking for a job after my broadcasting career expires. There you go. Yeah. And then you're going to call on Target. Well, No, I was going to call you, not Target. But thanks, yeah, for, the, but thanks for the brush off, Alyssa. <laughs> You know what? I think that's probably what they will do. And I think what they're going to, what's going to happen, Scott, is, is that a lot of retailers and those who watch this type of industry will be, will be watching Target to see what they're doing because everybody is looking at 
a different way to sell, a better way to sell. And if this seems to work for Target and, you know, that their numbers look great, then, you know, you might see other retailers adopted, at which point they will, they were first out of the gate. And you know what? It's all about being first. Uh, that being said, uh, are, is Target losing sales here by, as you said, putting out that merchandise early but getting full price for it because people are thinking, well, I want to buy it now instead of not, you know, run the risk of not getting it. So are they losing sales now or, uh, or is it ending up that this is pretty much a wash but really good PR once the season starts? Yeah, I think this is just about really good PR. I don't think that there's, um, and I did look before we chatted, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, the Target sales right now, and I think that they're very comparable to other big box stores. I think Amazon cleans everybody's clock, but I think that um, they're quite comparable to other walk-in stores. So I, I think that it will be interesting to see how they play this. They've certainly won the PR game on this, and now what we need to know is if they're going to win the uh, retail game. Would you brought up online sales? Would this would online sales suffer from the same sort of thing, or because they're not a bricks and mortar experience? In other words, where you walk in and you see all the decorations, and you see the Santa sitting there, and you and, and you see all the things uh, that appear to be the holiday season. Um, is it less so for an online world because you don't have decorations on a site? Well, you know, you're competing with 24-7, right, with an online world. So if people want decorations, then you know what? They're just going to go straight on to Amazon. You know, the shopping experience on Amazon, you know, my husband bought a carpet for his business, and we went to an, went into a number of bricks-and-mortar uh, stores and then ended up buying this sizal carpet for, I have to tell you, a great price. Had it delivered, bing, bang, boom, it was a great product, and it was said and done. I think that, um, you know, retail stores are turning more into showrooms more so than ever. I find that, uh, you know, I'll walk into a retail store, they'll have product out, but they're not going to have a lot of stock. And what they end up doing is basically ordering from their online store as it is. Yeah, and using it more as a drop-off point than anything. Well, exactly. So the bricks and mortar, you know, Restoration Hardware does this. They don't carry a lot of stock. You know, you want to order sheets and towels, well, then you can go in and feel the sheets and feel the towels, but at the end of the day, they're ordering it for you. So they've already been doing this for quite a few years, and I see that a lot of larger retailers who can do this and that don't want to hold a lot of stock on site are turning to this model. Now, I don't think that... Target is yet turning to this model. I think that Target still has that cachet of, you know, you want to go up and down the aisles. Like, people love doing that. And I will say that when I've been in the States and gone through a Target, you know, with my daughter, we go up and down those aisles. So it is uh, a very different experience that a lot of retailers have tried to imitate. Many are talking about the failure of Sears and, of course, how it just didn't update itself and, and, and keep up with all we are now talking about. Uh, that being said, uh, I heard somebody bring this point up a little earlier in the day, and it, I thought it was very valid, is that at the, in the initial stages, Sears had the right model in the sense that you would order from a catalog and it would be delivered to 
your local general store, which was just an outlet, and you picked it up there. Uh, they went there from bricks and mortar uh, to bricks and mortar establishments and such, and lots of stock. And if they had kept up and done, you know, the same sort of thing and used that model and come back, but you, but put it into a digital world, they'd probably still be in business now. You know, listen, I still remember going with my mom to Consumers Distributing. Do you remember Consumers Absolutely. Distributing? Absolutely. Oh, you would go into the store and people would be flipping through the pages yeah. very carefully and, and with the little pens and papers on the table, yep. you know, writing down their stock number items and then going to stand in line mm-hmm. and pick it up right then and there. You know, that was the analog Internet, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. And then bricks and mortar sort of took that and then took that away. But the catalog was still something, it, it's almost nostalgic, but really it's just now in a digital form. And sure, had Sears kept that model, but you know what, Scott? They wanted to keep up with the Joneses. You know, think of all the beautiful bricks and mortar stores that there are that you can walk into yeah. and and get product. I mean, you know, there were a lot of them coming up in the 80s and 90s. And, the, you know, the bigger, the better, the more opulent. So they wanted to play in that game. And then they kind of lost their way. I mean, honestly, it, it started with, you know, having really lousy stock, to be quite honest, and substandard stock. And Heaven help you if you wanted to actually find somebody at a cash register to check you out. That was always fun. So, you know, they lost their way with with customer service. They lost their way with um, great product. And then it came more about, you know, making sure that executives were would be retained and, uh, you know, help run the company eventually into the ground than it did about their the customer. And there was a Sears right at my mall here and, you know, they had that clever thing. It was like WTS, what the Sears. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm thinking, like, what the Sears indeed. But yeah, yeah. when you walk through this sort of new unveiling, honestly, the interior was set up just like Target. Yeah. It had the same um, push, like the grocery cart. Yep, yep. You were able to take them on the escalator. Mm-hmm. It was really wide aisles. It was more self-service. So they were trying to morph into or... Um, take up that space that was left by Target. But I think at that point, it was too little, too late. It fascinates me that these stores that had strong catalog sales, I mean, you look at even Canadian Tire, Sears, what have you, um, and some, it seemed in the last 10 years, instead of seeing the connection between catalog sales and where internet sales were going, they just saw the catalog as being outdated and dumped it, which seems odd because it wasn't that much time from one to the other. You know what, Scott, it's all about leadership, and it's all about getting the right team around you, and it's all about um, making sure that you're on the pulse of trends. And if you're just looking at your business, you know, two feet in front of you, that's all you're going to see. If you're looking at your business like a mile in front of you, you're going to see a lot more. So, you know, based on that, honestly, um Sears just didn't read the writing on the wall. They maybe didn't capitalize on on the Internet as it was. Uh, They were slow to the e-commerce. They tried to rebrand themselves into something that consumers just did not see them as. They're not a Hudson Bay. They're they're not. They're not a Lord & Taylor. They're not a Saks Fifth Avenue. They're, you know, honestly, Zellers was better than Sears. 
I can't. So, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, that's okay. Uh, I, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on, uh, let's talk some politics. The Wynn Liberals announcing their 2017 long-term energy plan. This in response to the scathing report by the Auditor General saying, you know, questioning their financing and their, and their accounting practices and such. Uh, and in this, we find out that, uh, you know, even though our bills have gone up, uh, have, have doubled in the last 10 years after this uh, refinancing uh, scheme is over after the next election that, that then uh, rates are going to head back up another 43%. How do they package this? And, oh and, and, and why do, <laughs> and rather than trying to package the same old bad product with a new wrapper, why not change the plan? Well, okay, so let's dial back. And, you know, there was the announcement of, guess what? Okay, yeah, your bill rates are going to go up. But no, 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 they're not going to be as high as we thought they were. So you're actually saving money. I am. I'm saving money because you thought there were going to be more money and they're turning out not to be. This whole thing is a debacle. You know, the Liberals take the, their, their voters, they take the people of Ontario to be idiots. And they think by spinning these ridiculous messages that they're somehow going to talk themselves out of this issue. But I have to say that I'm hoping that Ontarians are taking a good hard look at this. I'm not saying, you know, one party is better than the other. But you know what? Treat me with a modicum of respect. Treat me with a modicum of intelligence. And don't try and spin me out of your troubles with some ridiculous ridiculous lines about my hydro bills. I mean, th- this thing has gone so far out of control. All they're doing is, let me tell you, you know, every day, you know, they sit in the room and they go through the clips and they decide how bad is it. And if it's really bad, then they start, you know, coming up with different key messages and different narratives, hoping, hoping against hope to take this all into a different direction. So, you know, there's a couple things they can do. They can hope that something else comes up that will basically put this in, you know, back, you know, take this off the front burner and put it on the back burner. That always helps. But until then, what they have to keep do is messaging and re-messaging, hoping that Ontarians will see, will think, okay, well, maybe it's not that bad. It's ridiculous, Scott. It drives me bananas. And, you know, I was talking to another expert earlier on who is just as critical as we all are about this file, but then also pointed out there are some positives here, and they should focus on that, uh, you know, in the whole, you know, clean energy, we're off coal sort of thing. But you also have to correct this other mistake. You have to correct the problem. And I think people are just tired of the BS. They just want to be told straight. And here's another PR question. She did use the word mistake, which you should never do in politics, because Lord knows I've grabbed onto that keyword. And and, and and I'm glad that she did. And, and I don't want to make her think that she's you know, feel terrible for doing that because people like me just keep ramming that word back down her throat. But admitting you made a mistake and then not doing anything to correct it, she said the she said on the on the news the other night, people complained about high electricity rates, so we fixed it. But that doesn't mean they wanted you to pump pump the or pump the problem down the road. What they wanted you to do is correct the system. So why do they not even just phrase it that way? Like, you know, we've stopped, we've changed direction. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the positives that we've got so far and move forward with that instead of like beating a dead horse. 
Well, you know, if you've noticed that the conservative attack ads are now out in full force. Yeah. And all they're saying is that Kathleen Wynne lies, lies, lies to the public. So for her to admit a mistake is kind of maybe their strategy to fly in the face of that narrative. So if you're saying that you admit a mistake, it doesn't mean that you're lying. Hmm. It means that, you know, you're being up front with the electorate. That being said, you know, Scott, to change a system, you know, you might as well try and turn the world on its axis. I mean, you know, changing a system is a beast. And nobody wants to take that on. Trust me. Not, you know, months before, what is it now? I don't know, 10 months? Whatever, Do they have a choice? Do they have a choice, Alyssa? Do they have a choice? Well, they have like, a choice to keep pushing, pushing it down the road so they don't necessarily have to change the system themselves and take another, you know, keep taking a beating all over it every single month. Yeah, but let me ask you this, Alyssa. What yeah. about the next liberal government? Because you can... You, you can what? What? <laughs> no, but honestly, the, the opposition is going to be hammering this for 10, hammering them with this for the next 10 years because it's going to keep coming up for the next 10 or 20 years. Well, then, it'd be, you know, if they don't win, then it's somebody else's government. So it's somebody else's problem, I mean. So, you know, often when a political party is ready to jump down the throat of another party, the first thing that they think of is, all right, we better be careful because we're going to be, we may be wearing this, you know, in 10 months. So it, it's kind of interesting. You know what, Scott, most of it is a game, and most of it is, you know, um, avoiding conflict. And keeping your head down and hoping that, you know, something else replaces it, replaces that. But honestly, you know, nobody wants to do the hard work. They're just trying to always skirt the issue. And the people who lose is us. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, a public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.